You ready? Well, you're waiting on me. What to do, everybody? Welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular. Apparently, I'm opening the show. <laughs> you know. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Welcome to episode 7 of the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, where we know only that we need. I am Glenn Butler of the Wednesday Walk Around the Web, many fine podcasts and featured articles on placetobenation.com, but in my alternate life, I am also an office worker in the bowels of a multinational megacorporation, and this close to the beginning of 2016, it is time to set goals for the new year. Now, as various e-learning courses, teleconferencing meetings, HR emails, and otherwise distributed corporate materials have reminded me, it's important to set SMART goals, by which I of course mean the ever-helpful acronym that insists that one's goals be specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-based. As a good little worker, I shall of course apply this rubric to my personal and podcasting life as well, all the better to maximize synergy and drive innovation across platforms. To that end, I'm proud to announce a special series we're going to be doing here on the old Spectacular, one that's specific, time-based, and all that crap. But before we get to that, I of course can't do that alone, otherwise I wouldn't have anyone to synergize with. And whom could I synergize with more than my own brother, Mr. Scott Butler? Scott, what are your goals for the podcast? What do I say now? I, I, didn't, I didn't script that part. I don't script your parts. I only script a couple of mine. There's a goal. Start scripting my parts. Yeah, we, we've run up on the shore pretty early on here. <laughs> now, as I said, we are starting a special project. For the next several months, the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular will be heading into the vault to examine all of the Star Trek films. Because... I, I just want to talk about Star Trek some more. We are going to be taking a deep dive into one movie about every two weeks or so, starting with Star Trek The Motion Picture today, and going all the way to the 12th entry, Into Darkness, shortly before the gala premiere of Star Trek Beyond this July, and our attendant reaction show for the new movie, coming to your podcast-receiving device of choice on opening weekend. We are throwing our hats over the fence... We'd better actually do this. Well, not like your DS9 reviews? How dare you? <laughs> There's a goal for the new year. How dare you? Scott's referring, of course, to my written reviews of episodes of Star Trek DS9. I almost got through the first season before various personal issues resulted in me uh, suspending that series the way some people suspend their presidential campaigns. 
<laughs> uh, you can find everything that I wrote about that at placetobination.com slash Star Trek, where you can find some other stuff that I wrote about it. There was a wrap-up of the year 1994 that I thought was particularly good. There was my brief obituary for Leonard Nimoy. Whatever I do about Star Trek on the site winds up in there, as all of these podcasts will. Now, we have some guests lined up for future installments of this Star Trek Vault series, including a couple of returning guests from previous episodes and others from the wide world of the Place to Be Nation. But for this first one, for Star Trek, the motion picture, this is going to be one of our two-handers. So, Scott, are you excited to talk about this movie? No. Okay. Star Trek 1 has what you might call a piss-poor reputation, wouldn't you say? Among some people, yes. Um, among, among some people, among many people. It certainly has its enthusiasts. I think when approaching this movie, it's important to try to put yourself in the shoes of a 1970s Trekkie. Someone who has seen the show go off the air and return in syndication has probably seen it a bunch of times in syndication, watched the animated series, gone to conventions. It's a series, it's an idea that thrived in fan communities among zines and conventions and, and that whole scene for years before it actually got brought back as a corporate-funded entity. It really was the first modern fandom. With the, the letter-writing campaigns to save the series, the fanzines full of fan fiction, the birth of slash fiction. Star Trek really is the genesis of what we now know as fandom. Yeah, totally. And by the way, I think the role of women in developing that is totally underrated. Well, it was basically women who developed that. Yeah, basically. I mean, it's been observed in some places that I've read that Star Trek is, is something that all segments of society had access to because it was on in syndication at various places at various times of the day. So if it's on, you know, right after people get home from work, so you, you know, make some food and watch Star Trek. It's on in some places during the day, so housewives at home were watching it. Like, it was available to everyone. It, it was... You know, kind of everywhere for a while. It did great in syndication. And women were the main driving force, even while the series was on the air. Well, those letter-writing campaigns were organized by women. Yeah, exactly. Uh, B. Joe Trimble was, was the main person organizing the letter-writing campaigns that got it renewed for the second season, and then again for the third. And then it, it was it was huge communities of women who were doing fanzines, who were doing all these things. It, organizing it, the first conventions. Right. And of course, there were men too, but I think the stereotypical idea of the Star Trek fan as antisocial nerd boy is more a development of the 80s and especially the 90s. When, of course, I was an antisocial nerd boy Star Trek fan throughout the 90s. <laughs> But it's that 70s fandom that the first movie kind of grew out of. You can see in this movie, because it's written by Gene Roddenberry, story credit goes to Alan Dean Foster. But Which is bullshit, by the way, because it's basically the episode of The Changeway. There are various complicated things that went into that. I think Foster was writing the pilot episode for the aborted Star Trek Phase 2 series that got turned into the first movie, 
But when Roddenberry was writing it to become the movie, he brought in lots of ideas from the Changeling, from something called the God Thing, which is a whole... A whole subject that people have gotten into a lot, but it's this, like, amorphous thing that Roddenberry was supposedly writing forever. It was going to be the movie, it was going to be a book, whatever. Uh, parts of it and ideas from it got incorporated into the movie. But you can see in the way that Roddenberry's influence shaped the movie, you can see kind of the transition that he underwent because of the influence of fandom, because of the things that he heard at all the conventions in the 70s. It's my opinion, and I think a pretty reasonable one, that the utopianism and the idealism that Roddenberry is credited with isn't really there that much in the original series, at least from him. No, it's not. Uh, Gene Kuhn was a little better at it, Dorothy Fontana was better at it, but from Roddenberry, it just wasn't there. That's something that happened when people read that into it and then went to conventions and told him how amazing it was. Yes. A lot of the ideas associated with the Gene Roddenberry at later dates are stuff that he adopted in the 70s. Yeah, and I think a lot of that comes through in the movie. I think a lot of that comes through in the way that the sort of military structure and that whole aesthetic of command structure and people barking commands at people that really formed a lot of what Roddenberry did in the original series started to be combined with some of these more idealistic, more utopian ideas. Well, you could see there was one idea that Roddenberry postulated that ranks weren't ranks. Ranks were just job descriptions. Right, that's why when and Admiral Kirk takes command of the ship, everyone starts calling him captain. And same thing with Decker. When Decker's no longer captain, he becomes a commander again. The ranks are very fluid. And you don't really see that idea again until the 2009 Star Trek movie, which sort of brings it back, which I thought was a nice touch in that movie. But you sort of see a little bit of it here with Kirk and Decker. Yeah, and often uh, the characters address each other by their jobs. You know, people don't address, like, Lieutenant DeFalco or whatever. They say, Navigator, do this. You know, Engineer I'm, Scott. Engineer Scott. Helmsman. Science officer. They address each other oftentimes by their jobs rather than their ranks. But they still take the time to say that Kirk was an admiral and now that he's commanding the ship, he's called the captain. They take the time to tell Decker, you have a temporary reduction to commander. That sort of insistence on getting the details in there is still there. And you notice at the end of the movie when he's reported as a casualty, he's Captain Decker again. Yeah, absolutely. And, by the way, we're going to be bouncing around the entire plot of the movie because... We're not going through the whole plot of this movie. We're, we, exactly. You can't go through like methodically scene by scene because we're not, we're not gonna. <laughs> I'm trying to stay awake through this entire podcast, and I think so are you. And by you, I mean you... Dear, dear listeners who are sitting through a podcast about Star Trek The Motion Picture, we're going to try to keep you awake via the same methods we're trying to keep me awake. Uh, we do value your patronage. Also, I think it's interesting to note, back in the late 70s, you weren't seeing movies of every TV show. In the 60s, sometimes a TV show would, like, 
edit together a two-parter and release it as a movie. I think they did that for The Man From U.N.C.L.E. many times. Sometimes an international release, maybe, where they weren't showing the TV show, or whatever. Or occasionally there would be something like the comedy classic Batman. But it wasn't really de rigueur in the way that it has been. And of course this wasn't originally meant to be a movie. There is a long and detailed production history behind this thing. There were proposals to make a Star Trek movie in the early 70s. There was Planet of the Titans and, yes. and, and stuff like that that never got past the early, early, early pre-production stages. Around the time they were making the animated series, I believe, in 72, 73, 74... There were a couple different movie proposals. There was the Planet of Giants proposal, and then there was the time travel movie that somehow wound up with Spock shooting President Kennedy from the grassy knoll in order to restore the timeline. I don't believe that's one of the 70s things. I believe that's what Roddenberry wanted Star Trek II to be. Well, I thought that was one of the 70s ideas that came up in, like, you know, the early to mid-70s. I'm not absolutely sure, but I'm pretty sure that's what Roddenberry wanted Star Trek II to be. And the fact that that's not Star Trek II, and Star Trek II is a very different thing, is something... Get into uh, that next episode. We'll get into that when we get into Star Trek II, yes. But they had these early proposals for Star Trek movies, and then a lot of Trekkies will already know this, but... They had these early proposals for Star Trek movies, and then that sort of transitioned to where Paramount wanted to start a new television network, which they eventually actually did in 1994 or 5, anchored by the series Star Trek Voyager. But they had the idea to do it in the mid-70s, and it was going to be anchored by a new Star Trek series called Star Trek Phase 2. And there was a lot of development work done on Phase 2. They built sets, they designed uniforms, they wrote, I think, eight episodes, eight or ten? Something, something like that, eleven maybe? They wrote a lot of episodes, they were getting all ready to ramp up production, they had, they had cast new roles, and then Star Wars came out. And they basically scrapped the entire idea of a new Star Trek series because they said, look, science fiction movies are popular, we own Star Trek, put your hands together. From what I understand, it wasn't just Star Wars. It was kind of the one-two punch of Star Wars followed by Close Encounters that proved that Star Wars wasn't just a one-off thing. There's another sci-fi movie that made a ton of money. So now sci-fi can be a thing rather than this one movie that people liked, but that appetite is sated. You know, Close Encounters proved that this can be an ongoing thing, and then everybody started making sci-fi movies. So that's why they took the proposed pilot of Phase 2 in the image that was essentially the same story as The Changeling from the original series episode and reworked it into the V'ger story of Star Trek The Motion Picture. Right, and that history of Phase 2 is the reason why Spock is brought into the movie the way he is, because he wasn't going to be in the TV show. But yeah, Leonard Nimoy wasn't going to be in Phase 2. Leonard Nimoy, that, this was during his I Am Not Spock era, where he wanted nothing to do with any of this. He was not going to be in Phase 2. He was going to be replaced with Commander Decker as the first officer, and a new Vulcan character named Commander Zahn was going to be the new science officer. 
the character of Commander Zahn sort of became Commander Sonak, who appears briefly in the very beginning of Star Trek 1 and then dies in a horrible transporter accident. Yeah, before dying horribly. But the actor who was going to play Commander Zahn also appears in Star Trek 1. He plays the commander of the... Epsilon 9. Epsilon 9 base that gets destroyed by the probe. Yeah, I think it's interesting how they scrapped all these plans for the show, and yet they still felt the need to have all the characters who were going to be in the show. I mean, they had a script and they started reworking it, I get that much, but they had the characters who were going to be ongoing characters in the show, Commander Zahn, who became Commander Sonak, uh, Decker, and Ilya, who were going to be ongoing main characters in the show just along with the rest of the crew, minus Spock. But then they started making the movie, they got Leonard Nimoy back for the movie, and yet they still included all those other characters, which they technically didn't need to. I guess they could have just had Spock there from the beginning as if he had never been gone, but if you're going to do the Spock storyline where he starts off wanting to purge all emotions, and then through his interactions with V'ger, learns the value of incorporating emotional awareness into his being... Well, then you need somebody that's going to be there as the replacement science officer. So, do you engineer a horrible transporter accident to explain why there's a vacancy at the science officer position? They wanted to signify that it had been some time. Because the TV show's been off the air for ten years. The animated series has a lot of fans, but I'm not sure it was uh, very well known at the time. It might not have been easy to see it. It wasn't in the same syndication as the live-action show, certainly. No. It didn't have the uh, sort of broad awareness. It didn't have enough episodes to go into syndication. Yeah, exactly. So they wanted to signify that some time had passed. I mean, they gave everyone a bump up in terms of rank. They still had their same jobs, though, to go back to, to your point, except for a couple of the characters who they had go off and need to be brought back. You know, they start with Kirk coming back and just stating that he's been in Starfleet Command for two and a half years. Uh, they bring back Dr. McCoy, and apparently he's been out of Starfleet. And the first one they show, the first person from the TV show that they show in the movie is Spock. You know, pretty much the most popular character from the show. And the one whose journey is focused on the most in this movie, and the one whose journey takes him the farthest, kind of. Because, you know, part of the reason he was so popular in the show was because there was this tension between logic and emotion, and, and that was something that they could always play with. I mean, when you're watching Toast, you always know shit's going down when Spock starts crying or laughing. You know, there, there, there is something bad afoot. And, of course, at the beginning of this movie, he has, as so many of us have wanted to throughout our lives, he has gone back to his home planet to perform a ritual to purge all human emotion. Have you ever wanted to go back to your home planet and perform a ritual to purge all human emotion? You say that as if it's not a serious option. It is how I deal with my temper. It is how I managed to stop punching holes in walls at some point during my teenage years because I decided to try to purge that emotion and emulate Spock's emotionless facade, and that's why we still have intact walls in this house. We all must find some way to stop punching holes in walls, mustn't we? Y you joke, but I tried to do that for several years. Yes, for sure. 
And for Spock, I think this movie is sort of a waypoint on his extended journey. I mean, he, he is the one character who I think changes the most between the TV series and the movies. We'll see as we go along in the later movies that he comes to a much better integration of those aspects of his personality, of his heritage. He makes peace with it. He does that in this movie. Exactly, and this this movie is a big step in that. When we see him in Star Trek II, he is now at peace in major part because of the revelations that he had in this movie. And then in the end of Star Trek II, that all gets blown to hell, and then in Star Trek IV, he's still trying to figure himself out. Well, there are good reasons for that. We'll get there. We will. Uh, let's uh, let's not spend too much time in our Star Trek One podcast talking about later, better Star Trek movies. Oh, could we please? <laughs> you know, I really think this movie is better than its reputation, though. It is so incredibly dreadfully dull. Every bit of it is just dull. The acting is dull. The uniforms are dull oh. the colors are dull every everything except for dr mccoy is dreadfully dreadfully dull okay let's start with the visual aesthetics of the thing yes the uniforms are horrible they are pajamas in dreary like off pastel colors they are totally, totally unlike the uniforms from the series, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but there's just no color. They're like drab blue-grays, drab beiges, gray-grays. Siri Kirk's white t-shirt is the most vibrant thing you see on the ship. And the most colorful thing anyone wears in the entire movie are the mustard yellow field jackets they wear at the end. Yes, this is an entirely reasonable criticism of this film. Of course, Tos had such vibrant colors that popped all the time, especially once it was remastered for HD. One of the reasons they made Star Trek was because NBC wanted to sell color televisions. Exactly. That was one of their goals. That's why you have the bright uniforms on Star Trek. That's why everything on Star Trek is a bright color. Because one of the things NBC said to the production was... We want to sell color televisions. We're going to put the money into broadcasting this in color, producing it in color, broadcasting it in color, because we own a, a television division and we want to sell color televisions. So make this a show people must see in color. I think it definitely toned a lot of that down because they were trying to go for more of a serious tone. Well, they were trying to be 2001. Exactly. I think... You talk about Star Wars as the reason the movie got made. I think 2001 is a much bigger influence in terms of tone, in terms of aesthetics uh, to a large degree. 2001 is a, was a big influence on the production and the filmmakers. But Star Wars is the financial reason why Paramount said make a movie. Sure. I mean, I'm not I'm not disputing that much. I, I just think that the effect is a little overstated. I mean, I don't think this is a movie that's trying to be Star Wars at all. There's like one or two shots of the ships in the beginning that seem to be sort of trying to emulate the Star Destroyer shot from Star Wars. When the Klingon ships first appear at the very beginning... Some of the camera angles there try to be emulating the Star Destroyer shot from the beginning of Star Wars. Like, look at us, we have cool ships too. 
I can kind of see that, but the thing that they're showing off in that one uh, really long shot is the way that the camera goes up and over one of the Klingon cruisers. Like, the camera is in motion a lot more than it was in Star Wars. I mean, just in that couple of years, the, the effects have progressed. And the special effects, of course, was another huge, huge, huge part of this movie. Uh, the original effects house that was hired got fired, and then Doug Trumbull was brought in to do the effects. Did fantastic, fantastic model work, but they were really going to the wire. Uh, I mean, the uh, scenes were going to the scoring stage without effects. It was really close to the release of the movie that the effects actually got done. So close, in fact, that the scenes with long effects could not be edited. This isn't the fault of the people who made the effects, but one of the big problems with this movie is that there are long, long, long sequences that consist of virtually nothing but the entire crew staring at the view screen watching the effects, and us staring at the screen watching the effects, and nothing happening except the ship slowly passing by through this giant screen of effects and there's no dialogue and there are no events and nobody does anything and I guess it's supposed to be wondrous and impressive but in the end it's just dreadfully dull. I actually don't mind a lot of those scenes as much as you do and as much as a lot of people do because it is a fantastic showcase for the score. There, there is little else going on but some really arresting visuals and some really arresting music to go along with it. Um, this, this is like one of the classics of Jerry Goldsmith's career. And I think it's fantastic how he got these huge swaths of time in the movie to just go all out and introduce a lot of ideas that could be developed over long cues. Well, this must have been pretty good music in this movie because they reused it in Star Trek V and then in Star Trek First Contact and Star Trek Insurrection and Star Trek Nemesis and the main theme of Star Trek The Next Generation. Yes, there is the, the main theme that everyone knows, but I think in its later appearances it had kind of ossified into the Star Trek theme, especially after it came back for V. And, well, no, especially after it was used for Next Gen. It had kind of, which was, you know, before Star Trek V, obviously. But it, it had kind of ossified into the Star Trek theme, and so nobody really did as much variation on it as Goldsmith did in this first movie. I mean, all the other Star Trek movies he did are fine scores all. I know we're, we're going to talk about that when we get to the other movies. But fine scores all, but he never really goes back and plays with the theme as much as he does right here where he invents it. Well, naturally, because in this movie, it is the main theme of this movie, and so it recurs often, and it's used to underscore a lot of different things, whereas in the other movies, it's just a recognizable piece of music to plaster under the main title, while the main theme of each individual movie is a completely different piece of music. Yeah, it's definitely integrated more, and in fact, I mean, the best versions of it I don't even think are in the main title or the end credits, the standard March version. Uh, there's, uh, there's one track, The Enterprise, which plays when uh, Scotty takes Kirk on his tour around the ship, and, you know, the, 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 the music... And the, spe the visual effects adds up to this really, like, almost sumptuous sequence where you're introduced to, like, each part 
of the redesigned Enterprise model, and then you see these grand vistas of the whole ship. And it's giving you a little bit, just a little bit, of the warm, loving feeling that Captain Kirk feels as he looks at his ship. Yes. Star Trek fandom may have been the birth of slash fan fiction, but Kirk and the Enterprise is Kirk's OTP. Absolutely. and That's practically canon. Yeah. <laughs> and you see that a lot in the scene, and the music really carries a lot of that. But I also, I, I also love, in the long effect sequences when people are staring at the view screen later in the movie as they're being pulled into the V'ger cloud and, and exploring it, there are these long sequences that I think Goldsmith called a uh, concerto for blaster beam and orchestra. There's, there's this uh, instrument, the blaster beam, which is essentially a long aluminum apparatus, like 12 to 18 feet long, with metal strings, with amps under each string, and you pluck the strings, or you play them with various, various objects, including, at times, huge artillery shell casings. It, 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 it's this to see this thing played must be an experience because it sounds like the freakiest instrument that was ever invented by this man Craig Huxley that got used in a couple of film scores before Star Trek one but it's really really featured a lot it is the musical representation of V'ger it's this alien metallic synthetic sound that really, really carries that well. Do you have anything to say about this? Not really. It's the blaster beam. It's fine. It's there. What do you want me to say about it? You just gave us the whole history of the thing and how it was designed and who built it and, and the history of its use. What do you want me to say? Well, the point of the podcast is we bring things up and then give our opinions on them. I have no opinion on the blaster beam. It's just there. It's fine. I have no opinion on the blaster beam. Well, we, we can cut out this whole little argument. No, no, I'm putting it all in! <laughs> there are a couple other musical ideas that I want to hit on here. Uh, the first is obviously the uh, Cleon theme that's introduced in the first proper scene of the movie, which is something that's gone on to be reused many times by Goldsmith and his future scores and served as the inspiration for uh, the Klingon theme that Ron Jones wrote for Next Gen and has basically come to represent the Klingons in a way that is sort of rhythmic and a little primitive to use a term with weighty connotations. But it's something that has become known and something that is really a big contribution from this movie. The Klingon theme is a lot better in my memory than it is on the CD when I listened to it recently. It is not very fleshed out on the CD. It is very spare, very sparsely orchestrated. It's not nearly as good on this disc as I remember it being. It actually played better in the movie than it did when I listened to the CD. It just, it's just... Spare is the only word I can think of to describe it on the CD. It needs more full orchestration. It needs more backup. It needs more presentation. On the CD, it sounds like there's like one lonely dude on a clarinet playing the theme rather perfunctorily. See, I don't really feel that way. I, I, I like it when a theme is kind of bounced around different parts of the orchestra. 
you know, it's bounced from the horn section to the to the woodwinds. Uh, the blaster beam insinuates itself to represent V'ger at various points. The uh, Starfleet motif comes in when the scene cuts to Epsilon 9. There are all sorts of ideas kind of alternating throughout the track. I like when a theme bounces around to different parts of the orchestra, when that's a build-up to the theme being played in a full-bodied way by the entire orchestra. Otherwise, it's just a build-up with no payoff. Well, if you're looking for a full-bodied version of that Klingon theme, then uh, just wait until we get to five. One, one part that I liked was not the blaster beam representing V'ger, but the little three- or four-note theme that was the V'ger music that recurred frequently throughout the film. I, th- I found that interesting. Yeah, that's something else that kind of formed the backbone of some of the long sequences of being pulled through V'ger. And, w- and while we're talking about those, those sequences, I thought that a really great contrast that they built up was the way that you saw the Enterprise toward the beginning of the movie when you see all these like big vistas of, of the ship as Kirk and Scotty are approaching it. But then, when they're being pulled through V'ger, you see these big wide vistas of the inside of V'ger, and the Enterprise is this tiny little thing being pulled through the middle of the screen. I thought that really, really did a great job of portraying a sense of scale. Well, yes, they did a good job of presenting that sense of scale. They could have presented it twice instead of 18 times. They could have presented it in three minutes instead of in 40 minutes. But sense of scale was completely insane in this movie because they say right at the beginning the thing is 82 AUs in diameter. And then later in the movie they say it's about to enter Earth orbit. How does something that's 82 AUs in diameter enter Earth orbit? Carefully. (laughs) Because something that's 82 AUs might affect Earth's orbit. Might? Um, just Just a few more notes on the music, which I don't know how many people listening care about, but it's my podcast, folks. Name's on the door. Name is on the door. Uh, there is the love theme for Ilea and Decker, which... That is a really good piece of music. It is a really, really good piece of music. It's used as the overture, which this movie is one of the last two movies to actually use an overture in their original release. I think it's this and The Black Hole, which might be a little more obscure. It's a piece that doesn't portray young, innocent love. It's about the longing, and it's about the separation that they have before the movie begins, and that they have, again, when Ilea is killed and replaced with a puppet. And also, the integration of Ilea's theme into the V'ger material, the first six notes of of Ilea's theme, that initial ascending figure... Is, is played in a uh, instrumentation style more fitting with V'ger as they go into the cloud and then into the ship and, and explore around there in a way that I think is really astute. Especially since the first couple times it comes up are before the V'ger probe even takes Ilya. So it's, it's foreshadowing and then portraying. 
There's also the uh, Vulcan theme that pops up when Spock is introduced on Vulcan. It's it's a theme that I, I really like for the way that it portrays the tension at the heart of the Vulcans, and especially at the heart of Spock. You know, that strain that he has trying to hold on to himself and control himself. You got nothing. I got nothing. You got nothing. I got nothing. Anyway, that's just a piece that I really, really like. There is a fantastic release of this score from La La Land Records. It's a three-disc presentation. has the entire score. It has early versions of cues that Goldsmith recorded before he wrote the theme. There was sort of a um, an early version of the theme which had some of the same melodic elements, but wasn't really fully developed, and it's really interesting to hear that stuff. Anyway, it's it's from La La Land Records. It has everything on it, including, you know, a disco single of the main theme and Sean Cassidy's ballad version of the love theme, which is just fantastic for its schlock value. And it's a little weird to think that this... This movie, which is sedate, I think might be a kind way of putting it, was presented as as a major motion picture. It had Sean Cassidy doing a single about it. It had a tie-in for Happy Meals. You know, the way that it was presented and the way that it was marketed aren't really in line with the tone of the movie itself. Well, it's because the marketing people wanted it to be Star Wars and the people that made it wanted it to be 2001. There is that tension as well. Uh, we are going to get into that a little more. We are going to get into the characters, which, hey, this movie has characters. Uh, we are going to get into all that a little more after we take this quick break. See you on the other side. consideration paid for by the following what's up everybody this is kevin kelly make sure you check out every episode of the kevin kelly show right here on the place to be nation place to be nation.com the kevin kelly show every episode is a winner at least we hope place to be nation's justin rosero here in addition to the kevin kelly show we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on itunes at place you can check out Scott Criscolo and me on the Mothership, the Place to Be podcast, with our famous Vintage Vault pay-per-view reviews. PTBN also covers current day wrestling with main event, Mission Indie Possible, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows with immediate feedback on WWE, NXT, and Ring of Honor Super Shows. And relive wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series, led by Ben Morse, and the Dangerous Alliance Wrestling Podcast as we dive into various subjects in the form of exercises and games. We got sports covered too with the Sports Evolution Mega Show with Scott 
Dr. G, Cowboy and Cowboy Senior, the Kings of Sport, led by live audio wrestling's godfather, Nate Milton, as well as the NBA Team Podcast and the TJ McLoon Show. PTBN tackles pop culture and irreverence with Richard and the Mailman, the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular. And if you like a hybrid of all of this in list form, check out Jordan Duncan's Rank and File. All of these shows are available on PlaySubination.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. We want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, and Scott Keats' Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaySubination.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. This is Parv, and I'm here to tell you to listen and subscribe to the pro wrestling-only Place to Be Nation podcast network. That's the PWO PTBN podcast network, where you'll find a ton of in-depth shows done by hardcore fans. We've got Chris Zellner's one-two punch of Exile on Bad Street, and with David Bickenspan, a smash hit between the sheets. We've got Wrestling Culture with Dylan Hales and Dave Musgrave. Goodwill Wrestling and the Reaction Shows with Good Old Will from Texas. We got This Week in Wrestling with my man Pete and Johnny Sorrow. Stephen Graham and Tim Livingston's Pro Wrestling Super Show. Tag Teams Back Again with Kelly and Marty Sleaze. And a ton of other great shows too. And of course there's Titans of Wrestling and Where the Big Boys Play with yours truly and some dude from down south called Chad. PWO, PTBN, Podcast Network. Nobody needs me. I need you. Damn it, Bones. I need you. Badly. I take full credit slash blame for what that just happened. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a little throwback for, for, for you folks that have been with us since the beginning. You loyal listeners of the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular that have been with us all the way since six episodes ago. Yes, the uh, Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular Originals. <laughs> I, uh... <laughs> I was putting together music bumpers for this episode, and I had to do that. I, I, I take full credit slash blame. I make no apologies. Thank you, everyone, for uh, staying with us through that little mashup and through our break. You you can find many fine podcasts and articles and all of that on placetonation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. And now we are back in our discussion of Star Trek The Motion Picture, not yet known as Star Trek 1, because there wasn't yet a Star Trek 2. Now, Scott, can I ask you something else? It's your podcast. Do what you do. Name's on the door. Hey, Scott, what's this movie about? It's about two hours long. <laughs> okay. Waka, waka, waka. Well, when we were making notes about this podcast series, you instructed me to note down that every movie is about how they're all getting old. Yeah, that's something that I've said for a while, that every Star Trek movie is about how the characters are old. At least the first ten. I'm not certain that I disagree, but I think there are different flavors of that theme. 
For instance, I think there is a strong argument that can be made that this movie is about reclaiming your youth. Yeah, definitely. It's about Kirk's midlife crisis where he doesn't like his new office job and he wants, you know, his old exciting adventure life back. But, I mean, later movies are about people having to accept that they are later in life. This movie is more about people not accepting that they're later in life, about people saying, fuck that, I'm still young me. Kirk gets his shit back. Decker and Ilya reclaim this lost romance that they had years ago. The V'ger probe finds its creator. Spock realizes that what he needs is not the Kohenor discipline he's been pursuing for the last two years, but his old ship and his old crewmates and his old friends that he abandoned years ago. Everyone's going back to where they once belonged. <laughs> like that there? Oh, God. Get back, Jojo. I don't even know where to go now. <laughs> Even the Enterprise, really, is is fresh and new, but also the same Enterprise. Yeah, that's something they sort of emphasized, is that, that this isn't a new ship that they're all on. This is the same old Enterprise. They just replaced every single piece of it. Yeah, it's kind of a ship of Theseus thing, huh? That's a theme that ties in a lot with what Kirk is doing in the movie, especially. Um, I want to talk about the characters a little, because we talk about this movie being sedate, you might say boring, or dreadfully dull, as you have already. And well again. <laughs> okay. So, I want to think a little bit about what it's actually doing with some of these characters. The ones that it pays some attention to. I mean, Uhura doesn't have a big journey here. More's the pity, because as we know, Nichelle Nichols is fantastic and immortal. Yes. But Kirk especially has the whole midlife crisis sort of thing going on, but he doesn't really have an emotional journey. He doesn't really arrive anywhere. No, he has the whole midlife crisis trying to get his captaincy back. He has the sort of pissing contest with Decker, but that really gets resolved by Decker leaving. It doesn't get resolved by Kirk acknowledging any flaw of his own. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think Kirk is really a victim of the sort of 1960s Gene Roddenberry militaristic barking orders at people kind of aesthetic, where he comes onto the ship and he basically is barking orders at people. He doesn't have that many emotional scenes, scenes where he shows a lot of humanity. And part of that's the writing, part of it might be the directing, the acting in this movie is, is a little wooden in a lot of scenes. He only has a couple of scenes where he really gets kind of an interplay, and both of the big ones that I'm thinking of are with other Toast cast members, where they show a little bit of that camaraderie that was featured a lot in the show. There's a little bit of it in his scene with Scotty, yeah, when, he's talking, pod, when, yeah. Yeah, when he's talking about getting the ship back, and Scotty knows what that means, and Scotty knows what he would have had to do to do it because that Nagora, he is a big hard ass, apparently. And so they share a couple of moments about that. The big one, obviously, is the one scene that feels like Star Trek, really, uh, when McCoy is first brought aboard the ship. And we mentioned costuming before, and we didn't mention McCoy in that. The so. most 70s thing in this entire movie is McCoy's jumpsuit and medallion. That is the most 70s thing in the movie. The second most 70s thing in the movie might be the fact that they allowed uh, Michelle Nichols to have natural hair. Yes. 
I think uh, it's the only movie they did that in. It's one of the only times a person of color in a Star Trek movie has had natural hair, or in a TV show. It is it is vanishingly rare in Star Trek. You know, even more so than on other shows and movies, really. But that scene with McCoy, going back to a minute ago, uh, it is is the one scene that really has that sort of dynamic from the TV show. That sort of camaraderie and McCoy's orneriness. He continues to be ornery for the rest of the movie. Like, D. Kelly is playing this just like anything else that he was playing McCoy in. Yes. McCoy is the only thing in this entire movie that has any life in it. DeForest Kelly is the only person in this entire movie showing some verve, some vim and vinegar, some vitality. Go on. I'm trying to think of more V words. <laughs> Some vivaciousness. Some vivaciousness. Some verisimilitude. Verily. He, he is the only member of the entire cast that shows signs of life. And it's just because he's ornery. Yeah, basically. Well, the other characters don't really have that much emotional range. Even... It's Shatner! Yes. Shatner from the original series, everyone does an impression of Shatner from the original series overacting and over-enunciating and staccato speaking. Everyone does that impression. And he's dreadfully dull! There you go, you got it in again. I remember somebody commenting, talking about Star Wars The Phantom Menace. And they talked about how boring Samuel L. Jackson was in that movie, and how it really was sort of an accomplishment on George Lucas's part that he managed to put Samuel L. Jackson in a movie and have him be boring. How do you take Shatner and make him dreadfully dull? Again, I think that's partially writing, might be partially the directing, because Shatner, like you say, he is a big actor. He's a ham! Yes. He comes from a Shakespearean school that teaches actors to play to the cheap seats. You, you have performances so broad that they reach out across the entire crowd. And you put that in front of a TV camera and, you know, at times it's really campy and at times it just sings. And in this movie, like, it felt like all of that was reined in. Yes. If you want to call it campy or you want to call it, you know, whatever you want to call it, it's always alive. It's exciting. It, it has energy in it. There's no energy in his performance in this movie. There's no energy in anyone's performance except for McCoy in a couple of scenes. Yeah, and, and Shatner can play things understated as well. I think that's an underrated aspect of his acting, that he does the broad strokes and he, he does small touches as well. But in this movie, he doesn't even really get to do that aside from maybe a couple of lines. I mean... Spock is the Vulcan. He's supposed to be sedate and restrained. Stephen Collins is just boring. And now he's in jail for child rape, isn't he? Oh god, is he? Didn't he get arrested? Thought I heard about that. Stephen Collins confesses sexual abuse of underage girls. Oh goodness. Yeah. So, uh, let's not talk about him that much. No, let, let's move on. Except, he's boring. He is. He just looks boring and is boring. And Spock is the Vulcan. He's supposed to be restrained and sedate. 
Kirk is Kirk. And even he's dull. Persis Cambada is walking around with no pants. And even she's dull. Seriously, how do they dress this probe? They give her a shirt and no pants. And they be sure, and luckily, they give her a V-neck shirt so her little probe light shows up. Good, good costuming choice there, Captain Kirk. Well, it is the most miniature of skirts, right? Want to call it that? They have a probe that's attacking the planet Earth that's 82 AUs in diameter and contains all the knowledge that it's gathered from the known universe. And it's dreadfully dull. It's just a bunch of blue clouds and shit. 82 AU diameter probe attacking the planet Earth is dreadfully dull. Yeah. Yeah, th that's another thing that the movie... I understand how you did it. Because you watched the director's edition and the theatrical version in order to compare and contrast them. I could barely sit through this movie once. Okay, I don't want to bag on the movie totally. I've mentioned... I will. Okay, I've mentioned... I have. Yes, and you will continue, no doubt. I've mentioned some parts of it that I like and some parts that I appreciate. I will also admit that I was flagging at times. Um, the times when I was struggling to stay awake and you were berating me. Stay awake! We need to talk about this on the podcast! Yeah, well, when we're 40 minutes from the end of the movie and you lay down, <laughs> I start to get worried. <laughs> Remember what I said when you started berating me for sleeping through the movie? I said, wake me when something interesting happens. I think that's about 20 minutes into Star Trek 2. <laughs> well, we'll get there as well. Uh, but there are indeed, as you mentioned uh, in a segue a couple of minutes ago, uh, there are indeed multiple versions of this movie. There is the theatrical version, which is the one that wound up on the Blu-ray. Uh, there's the director's edition, which was released in 2000, which is re-edited and has some new special effects because they wanted to do more special effects for the movie. That's just what this film needed. Well, to be fair, a couple of the shots that they replaced were good ideas to replace. There's the one shot toward the end of the movie when they're climbing out of the Enterprise saucer onto the platform provided by V'ger, which in the theatrical version is a really hokey-looking force-perspective matte painting. Yeah, the scale is kind of screwed up. In the that scale scene. is way screwed up between the size of the people on the ship, the way that parts of the ship relate to each other, like the, the nacelles doing force-perspective in the background. It, it's just not a good shot that was replaced by something rather better, I think, for the director's edition. Uh, there, there are also some edits in the long effects sequences. Some of them are a little shorter. Well, that could only be an improvement. Most of which I noticed because I noticed them editing the music. <laughs> 
there there were some you know edits in the music that belied edits in the movie that to someone who hasn't been listening to this music for a long time as I have might not be noticeable because I think Goldsmith designed sections of the music to be kind of modular and to be more easily editable because he was scoring blank slates that said scene missing because they hadn't filmed the special effects yet <laughs> so he, he made it a little malleable so that they could edit the music when the effects came in Except, as I mentioned, that came so late that they weren't able to. Uh, there are also some brief lines and brief scenes inserted. There are some lines that are taken out. Overall, it's a bit of a wash, I feel. Uh, a couple of the shots, like I said, are improvements, but in terms of flow, it's still kind of rough. Well, there's also a TV edit that they made in the 80s, which has some added scenes... In particular, a few added scenes with McCoy, because he's the only person in this movie with any life or anything interesting going on. And so there's some lines of his, some rather famous lines of his, that are in neither the Director's Edition DVD nor the theatrical version Blu-ray. Right, that's that's just something that they used to do for television showings. They would take whatever deleted scenes they could lay their hands on and stick them back in the movie to make it long enough to have a longer TV slot to fit in more commercials, basically. So they would make these things pretty long. That's sort of the exact opposite of how they usually show movies on TV. They usually cut a bunch of shit out because they take a two-hour and five-minute movie and add commercials and run it in a two-hour time slot. Well, I think in the late 70s and early 80s, they were a little more prone to take a two-hour movie and add a few scenes back in and fill it with commercials and air it in a three-hour slot. I guess before home video, seeing a movie aired on broadcast television was a much bigger event and a much bigger ratings draw. Yeah, to be sure. Also, one thing I wanted to mention from the director's edition that was a very good edit was when uh, Spock goes on his spacewalk, they cut out the whole sequence where he listens to the instructions on his thruster suit. <laughs> Because, you know, he's got this. He doesn't need to listen carefully. The menu options have not changed. Yeah, you'd think that would have been part of, like, training. How to use the thruster suit. Rather than, well, you're out in space. Here's a pre-recorded instruction of how to use the thruster suit. Exactly. They also made a small edit where the guy, whatever character Commander Zahn was playing, where he reported the size of the V'ger cloud, and they edited that. So instead of saying it's 82 AUs, they said it was 2 AUs which is a huge improvement in terms of believability of the scale, still probably too big to enter Earth orbit. I think also that um, 2 AU slash 82 AU size is the size of the cloud that surrounds V'ger, and not necessarily the ship that the Enterprise enters, that is still a mammoth object, but maybe not that entire size. Okay. So it's a cloud 82 AUs in diameter instead of a ship that's 82 AUs in diameter. It's still too big to orbit the Earth! Unless it's orbiting at a distance greater than 41 AUs! Well, it depends on the density of the cloud. I mean, it could just be enveloping the Earth. While we're talking about scenes in the movie that were a little off, I'd like to talk for a minute about the whole wormhole sequence. Why was that in the movie? To add a little bit of excitement, a little small little action sequence, a little bit of peril, and to show Kirk as being foolhardy and driving ahead despite advice from everybody, 
Because Decker and Scotty and McCoy all tell him, no, we can't do this. And Kirk's like, let's go! And then he gets the ship into mortal peril. And then he, the way he wants to save the ship would be ineffective and possibly disastrous. And Decker has to save the ship from Kirk. The ship is in danger because Kirk is being foolhardy. And then Decker has to save the ship from Kirk during the consequences of Kirk's foolhardiness. And so it adds to their pissing match and shows that Decker is right. That Kirk doesn't know the ship and his lack of knowledge could put them in danger. Whew. See, the main thing I get from it is that whole aspect of Kirk and Decker's conflict, but I think that that is presented much better in the smaller moment where Kirk has to ask a yeoman which way it is to the turbo shaft, and, and, <laughs> and Decker kind of spots him being a confused, out-of-touch old man in the middle of the hallway. That That is a moment that I think is really dramatically efficient and kind of subtle that really gets that across. And to have the whole wormhole scene there to reiterate that point and re-emphasize that point is a little bloated. I don't think it adds that much excitement, really, because the whole thing is slowed down. Yeah. Well, it's Star Trek The Motion Picture. Everything is dreadfully dull, even the action sequence added for a spike of excitement. It also provides some of the impetus for Spock's presence, since the thing, the first thing he does when he shows up, say, "Hey, I can fix the engines." Yeah, definitely. Um, again, like in Star Trek Eleven, he he has to go and share some equations with Scotty, like about half a dozen times on the original series. He needs to go share some equations with Scotty. Yeah, definitely. That's how they discovered the uh, time warp, isn't it? In the Naked Time, when Spock and Scotty work together to cold start the engines, and they wound up time warping. For all that we might want to bag on the movie, it introduced a lot of things that wound up being long-running elements of the franchise. It starts off with the title font, which was used for many of the other movies, and for DS9 and Voyager. The first scene with the Klingon battle introduced the Klingon forehead ridges and the Klingon costumes, which... The actual, literal costumes that were made for the motion picture kept being reused and reused and reused and reused until they literally disintegrated. I mean, th th there are stories about casting people to play Klingons on Next Gen, where they would cast them for body size to see if they could fit into the costumes that were made for the Klingons in Star Trek 1. The engineering section went on to be the template for all the rest. Yeah, the whole vertical intermix warp core. Exactly, the, the vertical intermix chamber and the visual design of it with kind of the lava lamp kind of feel uh, was used for Voyager much later. Yeah. So a lot of the aesthetics that weren't the uniforms... <laughs> Went, went, went on to be used for a, lo a very long time. Well, bits of the uniforms survived. The security armor that you see in the background of a couple of scenes, that is reused in Star Trek 2 and 3 at least. And 4, I think. Probably through the rest of the Toast movies, but I remember specifically 2, 3, and 4. The engineering radiation suit oh, is, yeah. continues to be used throughout the six original series movies. And by the way, when your entire engineering staff is already suited up in radiation suits, maybe that's a sign that you shouldn't engage the warp drive just then. 
Well, you know, you want to take precautions. <laughs> Maybe the whole thing will, you know, flood the chamber. So, and also some of the uh, EVA suits, like the suits that Chekhov and Captain Terrell wear in the beginning of Star Trek II are really similar to the EVA suits that Kirk and Spock wear in motion picture. Yeah, a, a lot of those were cost-saving measures, but they also kept the things that were good ideas. Yeah, so, so some of the costuming survived, just not the dull blue-gray pajamas and the belt buckles with no belts. Well, there's the ho the whole background for those. Yeah, those are like medical scanners or something. Those are, those are constantly monitoring the uh, medical status of people on the ship. They they are detailed in the novelization for the movie, which we really ought to address because it is a humdinger. Well, these this is just war costuming choices. I like to point out when people wear sleeves but no shirts. And now these people on Star Trek wearing belt buckles but no belts. The Ilea probe gets a shirt but no pants. These are costuming choices that I like to point out. And Bone says his medallion, which I would kind of want to buy, although I have no idea when I would ever wear it. Bones has the only uniform with a, a V-neck and giant lapels. A few other characters switch off to the V-neck shirts, but none of them have the giant lapels that McCoy has. His V-neck is pretty deep, too. It allows him to show off his rich chest hair. Yeah, that was obviously the prototype for Picard's bedwear in The Next Generation. Oh, yes. Uh, of course. Which is the appropriate place for the Star Trek One uniforms to survive. As pajamas. Yeah, people have often described all the Star Trek uniforms as pajamas. And other than these, I don't really get it. But I guess that's just another, you know, kind of weird Star Trek thing. But... I mentioned the novelization a minute ago. Novelization is a trip. It is super wackadoodle. It is written by Gene Roddenberry, and in this case I actually believe that he actually wrote it, because it also kind of embodies that tension that Roddenberry had between the more buttoned-down, militaristic elements of the story and some of the freaky, idealistic stuff that he picked up throughout the 70s, as The Best Among Us did. There is a lot of background detail that isn't anywhere near the movie and, and kind of shows an idea of what Star Trek is and how Star Trek was developing that got totally excised after this movie. Well, do you want to talk about that now or talk about that in the Star Trek II podcast? Let's talk about it uh, at the end of this one. Okay. There, There is stuff in there about... Might, you might help me remember. There is stuff in there about telepathically linked polyamorous trios. Yeah, there's a lot in there. I, th I think in one scene, Kirk has like a subcutaneous communications transmitter. Yeah, he has a communications implant. Kirk goes to his meeting, I believe his meeting with Admiral Nagura in a Mediterranean sea which has been drained. There's a huge dam at Gibraltar, and the Mediterranean has just been drained. There's also a lot of Kirk-Spock shipping in the, to in the Star Trek, the motion picture novelization. Well, this novel is where uh, the term Tehila was introduced. Is that how you say it? I have no earthly idea. Although I think there's a... I have no earthly idea. Well, it's not an earthly concept. Haha. <laughs> Uh, I have no vulcan idea. I have no Vulcanian idea. It's go. not in my Vulcan mind. 
the yes the the Vulcan concept for brother slash friend slash lover a term for an intimate partner who is so 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 intimate that that has been glommed onto wholeheartedly by Spock and Kirk shippers. I haven't read that novelization in many years. I know you just read it like a year or so ago. I haven't read it in many years, so my memory may be fuzzier than yours at this point. But the whole concept of... What's the word? Tehila. That whole thing just sounds like Roddenberry was trying to rip off grokking from Stranger in a Strange Land. That makes sense, because it kind of speaks to this sort of mystical, but emotionally and intellectually intimate connection between Kirk and Spock. I think in the novel, it's presented as equal to V'ger in breaking Spock's devotion to Colin R at the beginning of the movie, where he kind of senses what Kirk is doing all the way on Earth. Yeah, that is that is nowhere in the movie, but it is presented that way in the novel. Uh, like, it's not just that V'ger exists, and that's what Spock senses. It's Kirk is worried about V'ger, and that's what Spock senses. Yes, exactly. Uh, and then after Spock arrives on the Enterprise, there are several scenes where he sees his friends among the crew and he, and everything stops when he sees Kirk. And, and then afterwards, he has to go find a meditation chamber. There are meditation chambers on the Enterprise, by the way. Well, naturally. He, Why wouldn't a ship have meditation chambers when six, seven years later, when Roddenberry makes a new series, one of the senior officers is the ship's counselor? That's a little farther down the line in Roddenberry's development, for sure, when some of the button-down stuff was fading away, although it's still there in the beginning of Next Gen. But we're getting a little afield. But after he sees all his friends, especially after he sees Kirk, he has to go to this meditation chamber and sort of collect himself. Because even though Leonard Nimoy's performance in the movie is totally, totally stoic, Yes. Not really playing that conflict the way he did sometimes in Toast. No, I thought he did very well playing the conflict, actually. Leonard Nimoy's performance here, you could see, every time he runs into someone he sees, you could see the displeasure on his face. Like, oh fuck, I like that person, and I'm not supposed to like things, I'm a Vulcan. I'm glad to see my old friend, and I'm not supposed to be glad, and I'm not supposed to have friends, I'm a Vulcan. And you could see that struggle on his face, and you could see that sort of, fuck, and now I have to try even harder to clamp down on these feelings because I'm seeing all my old friends. You see that on his face every time when he meets McCoy, when he meets Chekhov, when he meets Uhura, when he meets Kirk. You could see that on Leonard Nimoy's face. I thought he played that really, really well. Is that sort of the Vulcan equivalent of, like, implicit negging? Not necessarily the Vulcan equivalent, it's more the unique Spock equivalent, because other Vulcans generally seem to be much more at peace with themselves. Spock, much like Worf, actually, all of these people that are torn between societies, the way Spock is torn between the humans and the Vulcans, the way Worf is torn between his Klingon heritage and his human friends and his human foster parents... Everyone they show that's torn between two societies tries to cling that much harder to what they feel is the correct interpretation of their heritage. Like, some Vulcans will just say, okay, well, I'm not controlled by my emotions and I'm fine. Spock 
is the one to say, I don't have emotions, I don't feel happy, I don't feel angry, I don't feel frustrated, I'm going to go to Colonar and purge all the emotions, I'm not happy to see my old friends, I'm not happy to be back doing my dream job, I feel nothing, because I am Vulcan! None of the other Vulcans take it to that extreme, only Spock tries to take it to that extreme. And it's very similar to what Worf does, where he tries to adhere to this idealized version of Klingon honor and Klingon society that none of the other Klingons bother to adhere to, because they don't have to. They don't feel that pull between different societies and different moralities, so they don't have to cling to one so closely. Other Vulcans are just Vulcans, and they just are. And they don't have to try so hard. And they don't have to go to such extremes to prove to themselves, I'm really a Vulcan. The way Spock tries to do. Yeah, and that's, I think, definitely part of his journey through this movie, too. In terms of maturation. In terms of finding a way to integrate the parts of his life. Well, what he sees is he, he encounters V'ger. And he sees where that leads. He sees where being with no emotions leads. And it leads to a dead end. It leads to a being who is desperately searching out something else because just knowledge and logic isn't enough well V'ger shows the limits of logic because logic despite the way it's presented in Star Trek logic is not a philosophy it is a tool of analysis it is something that you apply to a proposition to examine its internal consistency you still need a proposition V'ger is operating along perfect logic, as described by Spock. Perfect rationalism in its way. But its premises are flawed. Well, it has no mechanism for forming new premises. Exactly. Because it has no capacity for conceptual leaps. Right. It's, it's that sort of induction that they come to the conclusion at the end of the movie is necessary for V'ger to progress. Yeah, exactly. V'ger has reached the limits of what it's able to obtain using solely logic and data gathering. It now needs something more. And it doesn't even know what that more is. Without, without something more, it doesn't know how to identify what the more is. Spock says it only knows that it needs. It doesn't know what. It needs an extra spark. It needs the ability to make intellectual leaps. It needs the ability to theorize. It needs the ability to desire. It needs the ability to want something. It needs the ability to expand beyond its own programming. For 300 years, it has endeavored to grow beyond its original programming. But now its growth as an artificial life form is at an end. And it needs, it needs an extra spark. It needs its creator to help it advance to the next stage. You can tell that this isn't an episode of the TV show because they encounter an artificial life form and Kirk doesn't talk it into eliminating itself. That's sort of an interesting question. I don't remember this. I've probably read it at some point. But what was the original ending to In Thy Image? Because obviously at the end of the pilot, they didn't send two of the main characters off to join with this computer entity and vanish. I don't actually... I, I don't actually know. To the Google... Kirk tells the probe that humanity is in fact its creator, and proves it by fixing a part of the probe that had been deliberately damaged so that only the true creator would be able to prove itself. 
V'ger accepts this, but tells Kirk that it no longer serves humanity, it will continue its mission of exploration, but for its own sake rather than part of its mission, although it may return someday. Kirk, Zahn, and Decker are beamed back onto the Enterprise, as is the real Ilya, and the alien ship departs. So, it seems there's, you know, just a facsimile Ilya, and then Kirk sacrifices his promotion to retain command of the ship. So it's sort of a more original series E ending where Kirk talks down the artificial life form. He doesn't talk it into destroying itself, but he talks it... He kind of talks it into leaving. Yeah. And not destroying Earth. And then Decker and Ilya go back to the ship so that they can be in episode two. Yes. We should mention at some point that the entire backstory of Will Decker and Ilya was copied for the next generation as the backstory between Will Riker and Counselor Troy. It was totally copied, and then not really developed a whole lot. Yeah, it was It was sort of their backstory, but then it was never really explored much on the series. It, they just sort of left it as they had this relationship in the past, and yeah. didn't, didn't pick it up again. Yeah, it was just kind of a textural element. But that's where it originally came from, was it was going to be part of the backstory of Star Trek Phase 2. Also, it doesn't really say a whole lot about Will Decker as captain when he doesn't even know the identity of his chief navigator. Yeah, well, fair. I also think a uh, 1970s treatment of that story would be achingly melodramatic. Well, it sort of was achingly melodramatic. I mean, even just their brief scene in the hallway. I suppose. To close out our conversation about this movie... I want to talk a little bit about one of its big effects on Star Trek going forward. The Phase 2 concept and the motion picture were conceived with Gene Roddenberry firmly at the helm. He was writing the movie when they converted it into a movie. He was managing the production. He was the producer. One of the producers. Uh, so much of it was his vision. This is... I mean, as, as I've said at various points over, over the course of this show, it's kind of the culmination of Roddenberry's vision as it was developing over the course of the 1970s. And due to some of the uh, faults in the movie, um, it made a ton of, mo of money. It was vastly successful. It was the most financially successful Star Trek movie for 30 years. Yeah, because it was such pent-up demand. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Star Wars The Phantom Menace was enormously successful as well. I don't want to compare it to that too much. It's well, not I'm great, but it's not... Oof. I'm comparing it in that there was this pent-up demand. There was years of nothing, and then finally there's a new thing. Yeah. And so everyone wanted to go see it. Yeah, there were fans seeing it many times to kind of get that hit. Yeah. Um, it was a movie that was engaged with that fan community. You see in the um, mission briefing on the rec deck early in the movie where there's this huge crowd of people, there are convention organizers and all sorts of people from the fan community in those crowd shots. B. Joe Trimble is there, I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah, I think so. A lot of the a lot of the fandom community was pulled in to be you know extras in those crowd shots. Yeah, this this is a movie that really features Roddenberry's engagement with fandom and the way that that happened over the course of the seventies. And successful though it was, because of the large production costs, which were augmented because 
all of the costs for pre-production for the entire Phase 2 series was lumped in with the production costs of the movie. Yeah. And then there was the special effects department that got fired before Doug Trumbull was brought in. There the were... The effects budget went completely insane. The effects budget completely got blown out. They had production overruns. They had budget overruns. It wasn't just that people didn't like the movie. It was that Gene Roddenberry as producer was a disaster as producer. They didn't get the effects done in time. They went way over budget. They ran over production time. It was a disorganized mess trying to get the thing put together. The A lot of the edits didn't get done in time. So there was like scenes unedited. Gene Roddenberry as the producer in charge of this production was a mess. And a lot of people thought the movie was no good. Right. So, successful though it was, it was Paramount's decision, based on this entire production breakdown, that they would go ahead with another Star Trek movie at a greatly reduced budget, and Gene Roddenberry would not be allowed anywhere near the new production. Yes. At all. Everything that's different between Star Trek 1 and Star Trek 2 and thus the rest of the subsequent Star Trek movies, is a consequence of Roddenberry being disconnected from the movie franchise. Roddenberry never had anything to do with any of the other Star Trek movies, other than a based on Star Trek created by credit. Yeah, he, he got his token credit, and that is the only interaction he had with any of the movies going forward. And he was not pleased. He wasn't pleased with hardly any of the movies. Well, there are there's always arguments within fandom, you know, what counts as, as canon. You know, are the books canon or the books not canon? Do the deleted scenes count as canon? Does the animated series count as canon? Do these production backstory notes that didn't make it into the episode, should that count? Well, Roddenberry said in 1980 or 81 or so, when he was fired off of the movie franchise, that, you know, they're going to make movies, but I'm not making them, so they're not canon. And that was his position right up until Star Trek II was a huge success. And at that point, he sort of softened his position and stopped chirping about it quite as much. Yeah, he stopped chirping about it quite as much, but he, he even the later movies, like 5 and 6, he expressed yeah. his dislike. He sort of went back to it. Because by that point, of course, the movies had been successful enough that he had been able to make a new TV show, and he was back in, and he had control of a Star Trek production again. So, from Star Trek 1 in 1979 to pre-production and development of Next Generation in 1986 after the success of Star Trek IV. That whole era, Star Trek was being developed entirely free of Gene Roddenberry's influence. Yeah. So, in our next installment of the Star Trek Vault, we will examine what that means when Paramount gets a new producer, a new director, and they tell them, make it good and make it cheap. And we will see how that goes when we cover Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Now, if you have any comments or anything in particular you would like us to cover when we do Star Trek II, please let us know. You can find the post for this podcast on uh, any of the Place to Be Nation social media feeds. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, everywhere. You can email me at glennb, that's two N's, at placetobenation.com with any questions, comments, suggestions for the show. 
You can find me on the Tumblr and the Twitter at Glennybun. Uh, Scott, is there any way that people can find you, or are you still ghosting? Well, they could email you, and I'm sure you can pass along a message if somebody is so inclined. Yes, send me fan mail for Scott. I really don't know why anyone would want to send me a message unless they're complaining about that I need you compilation. <laughs> we'll see. We shall see. And you... What are you trying to say? I'm trying to finish the goddamn show. We're out. Good night, everybody. ever flown to one star that will make our own